This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. rounding out uh, today, we're going to be rounding out a series that we've been in for the last few weeks called Seven Days That Changed the World. And uh, Christopher uh, last week helped us to focus on uh, the resurrection of Jesus and the event that we're going to look at today happened 40 days later. Okay, 40 days later. And uh, if you've got a Bible with you, you might like to grab a hold of it and turn to Acts chapter 1. going to just uh, read a few verses Uh, After the resurrection, Jesus had appeared over a period of 40 days to uh, the disciples and many witnesses, as Christopher shared with us last time. And we're just going to pick this up in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, where it says this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. That must have been amazing. And while they were gazing into heaven as Jesus went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace, we thank you for your goodness, we thank you for the truths that we've sung this morning, we thank you for your death and resurrection, thank you that you went to the cross and gave everything, we celebrate one who is risen as we've sung this morning and Lord as we come now to just uh, think about this next event, 40 days later, the ascension to heaven, I pray that you would send the Holy Spirit. We want to invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and be our teacher this morning. Would you instruct us and inform us and empower us and convict us? Would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might see Jesus clearly? Come, Holy Spirit, and do what you do, and that's point us to Jesus. We invite you with open hearts. Amen. Amen. Do you know, Howard asked me to speak on the subject of Jesus' ascension, and my first thought was, Oh, how very Catholic. (laughs) It's funny, isn't it? And then I thought, do you know, what a great subject. In all the years that I've been a Christian, in the many years that I've been walking with the Lord, 
you know what? I don't think I've heard much emphasis placed on the ascension of Jesus at all. Rightly, we focus on the cross, don't we? That magnificent moment of mercy when Jesus gave his life, dying in our place, enduring the punishment that we deserve, taking upon himself, as Howard shared with us two weeks ago, the fullness of the wrath of God. And we rightly also focus on the resurrection, Jesus rising victorious from death. Ultimately, if you're here today and you're a Christian, we live because he lives. We celebrate and live in the good of Jesus' triumph over sin and death. The problem with sin is not that it makes you bad. The problem with sin is that it makes you dead. But Jesus gave his life for us so that we can have life in him. And so rightly we celebrate a wooden cross, an empty grave and a champion. One who offers us life right now and life eternal. But we forget about the ascension, don't we? We don't even ask if it's important. We don't even really consider, often I don't think, if it's got any practical implications or relevance for us whatsoever. It was great actually this morning, and Tom led us in a song called The Creed. Do you know, for centuries, Christians have affirmed, recited, and been united by the confessions of creeds, like the Apostles' Creed. Do you know, it speaks of Jesus ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And for centuries, Christians have lined up behind this truth. But the reality is that for many Christians and for many churches, Jesus' ascension is, well, really little more than an afterthought to his death and resurrection. Michael Horton said, we treat the ascension often as little more than a dazzling exclamation point for the resurrection rather than as a new event in its own right. Tim Keller said, actually, it makes an important an enormous difference. The ascension, when understood, becomes an irreplaceable, important resource for living our lives in this world. And it's a resource that no other religion or philosophy of life holds out to us. And the great theologian John Owen said this, the assumption of our Lord Jesus Christ into glory, his glorious reception in heaven, with his state and condition therein, is a principal article of the faith of the church, the great foundation of its hope and consolation in this world. Now this morning, we could spend time looking at the event itself. We could think about how amazing that must have been, seeing Jesus taken up in the clouds. Where you see this recorded in Luke's Gospel, it says that the disciples responded with awe and joy and worship. So we could look at the event itself, but actually what I really want to do this morning is something ever so slightly different. What I want to do is spend the time asking ourselves, why is this important? Why is this event important? Why does it matter? What's the relevance? What are the implications for us? Many of you in the room will be very, very, very familiar with this extremely famous verse where David says in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Forget not all all his benefits. And if you like, this is the big idea today, okay? This is the big idea. There are some remarkable benefits that flow to us as a result of Jesus being ascended to God's right hand. Okay, that's the big idea. There are some remarkable benefits that flow to us as a result of Jesus being ascended to God's right hand. So, what are those benefits? What are those implications? Well, I'm going to talk about some of them in the time that we have. And the first thing I want to say is this. The ascended Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven and he rules and reigns supreme as king over all. 
when Jesus ascended, his eternal reign over his enemies began. 1 Peter verse, uh, chapter 3 and verse 22 says it like this, Now that he has gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand with the angels, authorities and powers being subject to him. So after Jesus went to the cross, after he bore the curse, after God raised him from the dead, after 40 days of proving himself, he's coming home. And John Piper said this, I love this quote, there never was before, nor will there be again, a coronation day like that. If a myriad angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents, what must they have done when the sun came home? The one whose blood bought all those repentant sinners. Psalm 110 verse 1 prophesied that Jesus would be seated at the right hand of God the Father. It says it like this, The Lord, that's God the Father, says to my Lord, that's Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Paul, speaking of Jesus' humility and going to the cross and giving his life for us, remarks that as a direct consequence, therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place, giving him a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee is going to bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I want to tell you that today, that Jesus is alive in a glorified, resurrected body, in a glorious, exalted state in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is enthroned in heaven. He is reigning over all of creation, over all people, over all creatures and angels and nations and kingdoms. And the idea is that Jesus is preeminent. He reigns supreme over all people and times and places and religion and ideas, philosophies, circumstances, preferences, ideologies, nations, kings, kingdoms, the living and the dead. He reigns over all. He is unprecedented in his scope and authority, his rule and reign from his throne in heaven. Colossians chapter 1 says, he, that's Jesus, is the image of of the invisible God. You may know this uh, passage, it's very famous. The Jehovah's Witnesses love this verse, okay? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The Jehovah's Witnesses love this verse. I got into a discussion, shall we say, with one once on my doorstep. Um, and they, lo they love to use this verse where it says Jesus is the firstborn to say that Jesus isn't eternal, he was the first one to be born. I just want to say, the word firstborn here has got absolutely nothing to do with being born. It's got nothing to do with chronology. It's got everything to do with supremacy. It's talking about the supremacy of Jesus over all things. The Greek word is prototokos. It means the supreme one. So what Paul's saying is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the visible expression of God's invisible glory. And he reigns supreme over all, over creation and planets and galaxies and stars, everyone and everything. And he goes on to say, he is before all things. He's eternal before anything came into existence, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn, the prototokos from among the dead, the supreme one, so that in everything he might be preeminent. And this is the idea, Jesus is supreme, and he's ruling and reigning. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, all things have been committed to me by my Father. So what's under his jurisdiction? All things. In John chapter 3, Jesus said, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. So what's in his hands? Everything. everything. 
That's what we mean when we say Jesus is Lord. He is sovereign. There's nothing beyond the control of his hands. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. There's nothing beyond his control. He rules over all things. These are unparalleled claims. Do you get that? These are unparalleled claims. Acts chapter 10, Jesus Christ is Lord over all, over every nation, every race, every culture, every religion, all people, all time, all places. Friends, this is a big Jesus. Yeah? This is a big Jesus. And what we can do accidentally is have a small view of Jesus. We can simply see the incarnated, humble Jesus not the Jesus who is exalted in heaven. And do you know what? Both are true. The incarnation of Jesus during his humble life on earth, that's an example to us for how we should live our lives. Yeah? But the ascended, risen, ruling Jesus, that's the object of our worship. If you were to see Jesus today, you would see him sitting on his throne. You'd see him high and exalted, ruling and reigning over everyone and everything from the right hand of God the Father. And naturally, you'd be undone. You'd be undone by your own sinfulness in his presence. And naturally, your response would be to worship because ultimately, that's why everyone in this room was made. Do you know, there's something wonderful, this kind of paradox with Jesus. He is both exclusive and inclusive. He's very exclusive, and he says it himself, in fact, no one comes to the Father except through me. Yeah? There's no, there's no way to God but him. There's no life but in him. There's no forgiveness of sin but in him. He's very exclusive. He alone reigns supreme. He is the only God, and yet he's incredibly inclusive in the every nation and tribe and language and tongue and colour and background. Whoever you are and whatever you've done, whatever your story, you're welcome to turn to him to give your life to him, to trust him. He is wonderfully and mercifully inclusive in that he invites everyone to taste of his grace, to be forgiven of their sin and to spend forever with him. And that's the Jesus we're talking about today. Okay? One who is alive and well, seated on his throne in heaven at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning supreme overall after his ascension in his glorious exaltation. And so, in the ascension of Jesus, we see, the, we see the supremacy, the exaltation, the superiority, the authority, the rule, the sovereign lordship of the forever living Jesus. Okay, so, you might say, okay, that's, that's great. That's one of the things we see from Jesus being ascended. Actually, we just get him in the right perspective. But you might ask, well, how does it impact you and me? Does it actually get personal for you and me? And the answer is yes, and I'd like to read to you what uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace that you've been saved. And check this. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. The immeasurable riches of his grace. Forget not all his benefits. The immeasurable riches of his grace. And so here we see the interruption of God in our lives. You see, it says, but God. Okay, that's the story for me. It's probably the story for many people in this room. But God, 
there was a moment when God interrupted my life. And maybe that's a story for many of you. I can remember where I was. I can remember what I was doing. I can remember when it was. It was March of 1991. I can remember. And do you know what? That's the story for many people here. But God, we were dead. Yeah, We were lost. We were nowhere and we didn't even know it. Blind to the truth of God. Completely unaware, completely oblivious of the love and the grace of God. And yet, it says, but God, there was a moment when he broke into our lives and he saved us. And you know, it's important that we realise that we're not just saved from something, we're also saved into something. Okay, We're not just saved from something, we're saved into something. We're saved from sin and its consequences, but we're saved into a whole new life. Paul describes us here as being raised up with Christ. The Bible frequently describes us as being in Christ, united with Christ. Elsewhere, Romans uh, chapter 6 and verse 11, we're told to count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Actually, we must look at ourselves that way. We must talk to ourselves that way. What is true of me? I'm dead to sin. I've died to it. It's not that I don't ever sin. It's that sin is no longer the dominant force in my life. In Jesus, I've become alive to God. I'm completely changed on the inside by coming into Christ. I'm united with him. I've been rescued from sin and death and from exclusion from the presence of God. I've been saved into a whole new life with God. I've been raised with Christ. And you know, if we are united with Christ, what is true for Jesus is true for us. Okay, what is true for Jesus is true for us. We've died in him and we've been raised with him. And here we see that we've been raised up with Christ. And you might imagine that what he's talking about is talking about the future, like when you die and you might go to heaven. And undoubtedly that is true. But what Paul's referring to here is actually a little bit more than that. We're not looking at prophecy of a future condition. We're talking about our condition right now. We've been raised up with Christ. The Bible says that we're in Jesus. He's in us. We're united with him. Jesus himself gave us this image. He said, I am the, I am the vine and you are the branches. It's like his life flows in and through us. What is true for Jesus and true of him is true for us. Jesus died. We died in him. He was raised. We've been raised in him. But do you know that not only have we been raised, this verse says that we're sitting down. <laughs> We've been raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 1, we read that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And here we read that God has seated us with him in heavenly places. I'm just going to kind of unpack this a little bit. Just think about this for a minute. In Hebrews chapter 1, speaking of Jesus, we read that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Later in uh, the book of Hebrews, the writer tells us, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus sat down. Do you know what? Typically you sit down when? When you've finished your work. Yeah? You sit down when you've finished your work. Sometimes you sit down to enjoy the fruit of your labour. Jesus sat down to enjoy the fruit of his work. Jesus had finished 
his work. Having done the work he was sent to do, having completed his ministry, Jesus sits down at the right hand of God to enjoy the fruit of his victory. And we're in Christ. We're united and joined to him. What's true for him is true for us. So if he's enjoying his victory, we too should be enjoying victory in him and with him. If he's victorious, we're victorious in him. We should have a conscious enjoyment of the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ. And it says that we are seated in heavenly places. Again, this isn't so much a prediction of a future state after we die, it's a statement of what's true for us if you're a Christian right now. If you're a Christian, if you've given your life to Jesus, if you are joined to God by all that's been accomplished for us in Jesus, the reality is that right now you are seated in heavenly places. You think you're sat in the Parabola Arts Centre in Cheltenham, but the Bible says you're seated in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. And the trouble is, we can, we can so often be, uh, how can I put it, conscious of the earthly realm. We can be so um, conscious and taken up by the reality of where we are. That's not surprising, is it? We're very obviously here, aren't we? We have the trials and the challenges and the pressures of life, studying, uh, raising kids, not having any sleep, whatever it might be uh, for you. Um, you know, work pressures, financial pressures, paying the mortgage, issues of sickness. We face all sorts of issues and challenges and trials and, and cares of life, don't we? And we can so easily be, be, be taken by, uh, by those. Do you, do you see what I mean? We can so easily be focused on those. Uh, when I went to uh, France on holiday last summer, I was acutely aware of the realm that I was visiting. Okay? I was conscious that I was in France. I had to drive on the wrong side of the road. I had different currency in my pocket. There were plenty of things that kept me conscious of the fact that I was visiting a different realm. It was a different language and a different culture. Even the food is a bit different, okay? But even though I was in the realm of France, I was a visitor. I didn't belong there. I've got a British passport. I belong to the realm of Great Britain. And if I found myself in some kind of trouble in France, what would I have done and to where would I have appealed? I would call on the help of the realm to which I belong, right? So I would have gone to the British Embassy, I suppose. Depends what I'd done, right? <laughs> if I'd got in trouble with a gendarmerie. Anyway, let's, let's, not, let's, let's not get into that. Listen, it's so easy to be more acutely aware of the earthly realm and the pressures and the issues of life, being focused on where you are right now. But the Bible says that we are seated in the heavenly realm, where as Christians we most truly belong. In Philippians 3 and verse 20, we're reminded that our citizenship is in heaven, in heavenly places where Jesus is. We're just visiting here, we're just kind of briefly passing through really. We're seated in heavenly places, we belong to a kingdom that doesn't spoil or fade, we belong to the heavenly realm where Jesus Christ dwells because we've been raised up with Christ and seated in heavenly places with him. And you say, right, okay, that's, 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 uh, that's, a, that's another one. Okay, so we look at Jesus reigning supreme. We, we look at the fact that, okay, we've, um, we, we, we've been raised and seated in heavenly places. Uh, okay, but does this get practical? Maybe you're sat there thinking, like, does, does this get practical or is this just kind of theoretical statements about our condition before God if we're a Christian? I want to tell you it gets extremely practical and one of the most obvious and practical benefits of the fact that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ is that we have immediate access to God. Okay, 
we have immediate access to God. Hebrews chapter 9 says that Christ has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus entered heaven itself to appear for us in the presence of God. We're in Christ, we're united with him, we're raised with him, we're seated with him in heavenly places. If Christ has entered into the very presence of God, friends, the amazing mystery is that somehow we've entered there too. In Hebrews chapter 10, this is very famous, you probably have heard this read many times, therefore brothers since, and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that's through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. That's a verse that I've heard countless worship leaders or um, people kicking off a prayer meeting quote over the years, an exhortation to draw near to God. And sometimes I think we can fall into the trap of thinking that God is remote and he's distant and he's infinitely far away from us. And you hear that kind of encouragement, come on, draw near to God, have confidence, you can draw near to him. And we, somehow we, we wonder, how can we do that? How can we somehow squeeze ourselves a tiny little bit closer to kind of close the gap between us and a God who is just so far removed, so far away? Can I tell you this? Are you listening? The reason we can draw near is because he is near. Okay? The reason we can draw near is because he is near. We're united with Christ in heavenly places with him, in the presence of God. We're near to God. We can draw near with confidence because we have immediate access into his presence. And that's why prayer and worship shouldn't be dull and monotonous and just some kind of regime and some kind of ritual that you go through. It's meaningful because he is here and he is near, and we can draw near to him. We can be in his presence. We have immediate access to him. I don't know about you, but I love to linger in worship. In fact, worship is that, isn't it? Lingering over the incomparable riches of the mercy and grace of God as we contemplate Jesus and the marvellous things that he's done for us as we come into the very presence of God because we're in Christ. We're seated with him in heavenly places. Actually, this is immensely practical. God is near and we can get right into his presence. We're invited. We have immediate access into his presence. In chapter 4 of Hebrews, the writer says, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, passed through the heavens, that's ascension language, okay, passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may, that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. What we've got to see is this. Jesus didn't just sacrifice himself, bring us to the Father, and then clear off and leave us there. Okay? The Bible tells us that Jesus is our mediator, our go-between, our high priest. We can draw near to the throne of grace, we can find mercy, we find in Jesus one who is sympathetic, one who understands, one who gives grace, and we can approach God through Jesus who pleads forever on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says that Jesus is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
If anyone sins, John says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Uh, In 1 Timothy it says, there's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And Paul in Romans chapter 8 says this, listen, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's going to condemn? It's Jesus Christ who died, yes, it was he who was raised from the dead, it's he who's at the right hand of God, and it's he who intercedes for us. So I want us to see that not only does the ascension demonstrate that Jesus reigns supreme over all, not only does it certify, if you like, atonement for sin has been made, not just that by being seated in heavenly places with Christ do we have immediate access into the presence of God, but also that Jesus is now interceding for us and giving us a saving and welcoming access to God the Father forever. Which means, practically, if you're struggling, if you're suffering, if you're finding the, the challenges and the pressures of life and the circumstances that you're currently walking through difficult, hey, Jesus is not indifferent to your struggle. He himself endured great suffering. And you can take your cares to Jesus, the Ascended One who hears your prayers and is able to respond with all of heaven's authority because he is there (laughs) and he has it. When we pray to Jesus, we're not just praying to someone that we hope is alive. We're not just praying to someone that we hope can hear us. We're praying to someone we know is alive and who alone can mediate between us and the Father and see our prayers answered. I want to give you just very quickly a couple of a couple of uh, a couple of extra benefits, okay, which we'll touch on very briefly. The reality is that any of these things I mention could be a whole hour of talking by themselves, and some of them a whole sermon series by themselves, right? So we're just kind of touching a touching a few things. Um, not only do we have an advocate in heaven interceding on our behalf, but we have a helper, an advocate here on earth, the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself said, it's better that I go because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you. And so the exalted heavenly Lord Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to be present with his people to empower us for mission. Uh, We would have seen that in Acts chapter 1 right at the very beginning and to transform and empower our lives. And the reality is that the Holy Spirit's presence is limitless. Okay, He's not limited by time or space or some kind of physical location. His empowering presence is available to all followers of Jesus at the same time. I want to say as well that Jesus' ascension, there's so much more I could say about that, we could talk for an hour about the giving of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, Jesus' ascension gives us the spoils of Christ's victory, uh, gifted leaders and spiritual gifts. We read about this in Ephesians chapter 4, a uh, very famous set of verses uh, between uh, verse 7 uh, up to 12, and Paul connects the grace that we have received with the ascension of Jesus. The grace refers to spiritual gifts and to gifted ministers. He says that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he quotes David from Psalm 68, which is a description of God's triumphal ascension to his throne. And it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And Paul insists that this refers to Jesus' triumph and now sat at God's right hand, Christ distributes gifts to God's people in order to mature them. So if you like, forget not all his benefits, one of the benefits, the spoils that we enjoy, uh, enjoy 
specifically here, are the gifts of the Spirit and gifted leaders that are given to equip and build up the church in unity and maturity. Again, so much more we could say about that. Sorry if it feels like I'm, I'm rushing. I, I, I just want to say that there, we focus on the cross, we focus on the resurrection, we forget about the ascension, but the number of implications, the benefits to us are huge. I want to say this, that not only do we have these benefits during this life because of the ascension of Jesus back into heaven, but Jesus said that he's going to prepare a place for us. This is kind of where I want to round out a little bit this morning. He's gone ahead to prepare a place for us so that we can be with him in heaven forever. He said it in John uh, chapter 14. He said, in my father's house, that's a great picture, isn't it? In my father's house, there's many rooms. And if it wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, Paul's speaking of the eternal weight of glory that we uh, eagerly await. And he recognises that we're looking forward to a heavenly dwelling. He says, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks of future glory, you know, the, the fact that we, we might be suffering and struggling now in this life, but that's not even any kind of comparison to the weight of the future glory that awaits us. And that we and creation are longing for it, eagerly awaiting adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. And that kind of passage in Romans chapter 8, it comes to um, a climax, uh, really, um, in verses 29 and 30, we're talking about eternal life. We're talking about hope for a future with God. And Paul talked of those whom God foreknew, predestined, called, justified and glorified. Again, it's a couple of mighty verses that we could spend a couple of hours or two unpacking. And so I'm going to have to satisfy myself and settle with simply saying that what Paul is talking about in terms of uh, looking forward uh, to all that that is there for us, future glory, a home in heaven. What Paul is talking about is how God has set his heart on a people and set them apart for a wonderful destiny of being transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus and then finally to be glorified in heaven forever. What he's talking about is an amazing hope and destiny for us if we are believers. He's talking about the assurance and confidence that we can have for a wonderful future in God. And there was that moment in time, I referred to this earlier, there was that moment in time where God calls us. I said, I know where I was. Maybe that's your story too. But God, maybe even for you this morning, you're listening to these truths and there's just something pulling on your heartstring. And that might be God calling you this morning. There's a moment in time where God calls us and gives us life and catches us up in his purpose. There comes a point where the gospel is irresistible to us. You're not forced to believe against your will. The gospel is irresistible insofar as you hear the call and you don't want to resist it. It's so wonderful, I must have it. Eternal life, peace with God, sins forgiven, adoption into God's family. It's so wonderful, I've just got to have it. And that's a work of God. Some people, of course, will say, well, you know, why is it that God doesn't save everybody? Hey, listen, the remarkable reality is that God would save anybody. Yeah, we were sinners, we were haters of God. 
Now we find ourselves as heirs of the promises of God, saved and loved. It is simply amazing. And having been called, Paul says that we're justified. Friends, justified is it's more than sins forgiven. It's a whole new relationship with God. Declared righteous by God right now and forever. Being seen by God as being covered in the righteousness of his son. All that happened to Jesus being credited to us. To be justified means to be holy and blameless in God's sight with no charge to answer, to be at peace with God. That everything that could declare us guilty, everything that could condemn us, every single charge that could be raised against us, every single sinful thought or action that could be raised has been dealt with and removed and washed away by the blood of Jesus through his sacrifice at the cross. Justification is that our sins have been counted out to Jesus and his righteousness counted back out to us, leaving us with no charge to answer. You now belong to God forever, and you will be glorified. Do you notice that in Paul's phrase there, all of the words are written in the past tense. Glorified is also written in the past tense. And if you're a Christian here today, if you've given your life to Jesus, I want you to see that God has set his heart and affection on you. He set you apart for a wonderful future in him. If you've been called and if you've been justified, that you will be glorified is so absolutely certain beyond a shadow of a doubt that Paul can talk about it as if it's already happened. Okay, this is about the eternal assurance of our salvation. We will be in heaven. We will have new bodies. We will see God. We will reign with Christ. It's certain and it's sure. And of course, at one level, of course, we understand. We haven't experienced this yet in its fullness, but it's a sure and certain promise of God's intention. It's already been settled. Those who've been justified, those who've been declared righteous, will be glorified. If we're believers, if we're joined to Jesus, if we're committed our lives to Jesus, we should have an absolute assurance right now and for that great day of judgment the proclamation that will be spoken of over us will be no charge to answer no charge to answer sure right we still experience suffering we still experience the uh, the trials and the complexities and the pressures of this life in this broken world but we are sustained and i want us to be sustained today by this hope a sure and certain hope of future glory of course it's a hope because it in in that sense it hasn't happened to us yet but it's a hope that is sure and certain. And we can be confident that in all things, God is working, about, working to bring about good for us. We can be confident in a God who never changes. We can be confident in a God whose promises always come to pass. We can be confident in a God who is faithful to the end. We can be confident in one whose love for us is eternal and steadfast because before anything that is ever was, he set his heart on you and me. And despite everything that's gone wrong with the world, he's always had a plan for a day when he'll wipe tears from eyes, when hurt and pain will cease, when we're totally transformed into his likeness, into the likeness of Jesus, when we will see Jesus, when we will be with him in heaven, in glory forever. Tozer says this, we should meet the uncertainties of this world with the certainties of the world to come. Yeah? We should meet the uncertainties of this world with the certainties of the world to come. Friends, circumstances change. Happiness comes and goes. But we have a hope that goes beyond the grave. We have a citizenship in a realm that will not spoil or fade. And here's the thing. In heaven, we've got one who is interceding for us, one who sympathises with our weaknesses, one who hears our cries, knows our pain, one who is near to us 
and we can hold on to him. Christopher was talking last week about doubts and fears. In our doubts and fears, we can hold on to him. As we walk through the challenges of life, we can hold on to him. But what we really need to know is not so much that we can hold on to him, but that he promises to hold on to us. Yeah? One of my favourite verses in the Bible, Jude refers to us as those who are called and beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Those who are called are those who are kept. Yeah, those who are called are those who are kept. I said at the start that we focus on the cross and the resurrection, but rarely the ascension. We rightly focus on the cross. D.A. Carson says, those who are the most mature are the ones who keep coming back to the cross as the measure of God's love for them. So it's right that we focus on the cross. It's right that we celebrate the resurrection where Jesus rose again in victory over Satan, sin and death. But somehow the picture is just a bit bigger than that. And that's hopefully what, what we're capturing this morning. The picture is just ever so slightly bigger than that. Friends, Jesus was born so that you and I could be born again. Jesus lived a life that you and I could not live. He died a death that we should have died. He gave his life so that you and I can have life. He rose to life. And as we saw, in him we've been raised. And he appeared for 40 days by many proofs to many people. And then, then he ascended to heaven in a glorified, resurrected body. He sat down at the right hand of God and the ascended, living, glorified, resurrected King of Kings rules over everyone and everything. We have been raised and seated in heavenly places with him. We have immediate access into the presence of God. We have an advocate who is there on our behalf. He hears our prayers. He understands our weaknesses and our difficulties and the struggles of life. He sends the Holy Spirit to empower us and to help us, and as a deposit, a down payment, a guarantee of what's to come, because he has gone ahead of us preparing a place for us, so that all who follow in his wake, if you're a Christian, if you're joined to Jesus, we'll find ourselves in his kingdom, in a place where there's no sickness and no death, no evil. And as the angels who appeared to the watching disciples as Jesus was taken up into the clouds, said, he is coming back with the clouds. Okay, he's coming back with the clouds on that day, every eye is going to see him, every knee is going to bow, death is going to be swallowed up, and we're going to be with him forever. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.